we open our Bibles now to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, considering it from the beginning of the chapter as we carry on our look through the Gospel of John. And we see now this incident where Jesus is going to meet with a woman in a very a significant and really very endearing situation here. We begin it now at verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. When we last left Jesus in John chapter 3, we saw that he was doing a work of baptizing people in the region of Judea. He did this as sort of an endorsement upon the work of John the Baptist and an extension of the work of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was baptizing people in the name of repentance and sort of a symbolic cleansing in preparation for the Messiah. And Jesus carried that work on. However, Jesus sensed, no doubt, leading from his Father in heaven and by the work of the Holy Spirit, that the time for that was ending and it was time for him to leave the area of Judea and go up north to the area of Galilee. However, in between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north is a section in the middle that was known as Samaria. Now, many uh, devout Jews of that time did not want to go through Samaria. Uh, they sort of had a checkered history with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were people of a mixed origin, both genetically and religiously. They had sort of a Jewish faith and a Jewish background in one sense, but they had incorporated from different cultures around them other aspects that the Jews felt were abhorrent to their worship of Yahweh. And so in the Jewish mind, the Samaritans were traitors. To the Jewish mind, the Samaritans had a corrupt religion, even having their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Or maybe I should put it this way. They used to have their own temple on Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans had a temple on Mount Gerizim to answer the temple that the Jews had in Jerusalem. But about 150 years before the time of Jesus, the Jews went and burned down the temple of the Samaritans in, on Mount Gerizim and it had not been rebuilt. That's the kind of thing that makes for bad blood among people. Therefore, many devout Jews would bypass Samaria. They would add an extra day or two onto their journey so that they could go around Samaria and go from Judea to Galilee or the other way around. But look at what it says right there in verse 4. It says, he needed to go through Samaria. Friends, the need wasn't prompted by a travel schedule. It wasn't his navigation system that was sending him through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria because he knew that his father in heaven had arranged a divine meeting between the son of God and a particular woman at a well in Samaria. So let's see how this unfolds, beginning it up here at verse 5 where it says, So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, having wearied for, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Would you please notice the words in verse 6? Being wearied from his journey. I know about you, but I find this to be immensely fascinating. What do I mean by that? Well, as we've seen in the Gospel of John up to this point, John is very careful to point out to us that Jesus is God. He is the unique son of God. He is God the son. 
that he's no mere man, that he's more than a man. That's who Jesus is. Yet John, the gospel writer, never shies away from showing us that Jesus is not a superman. He's God, but he's not superman. He's God, but he has deliberately embraced the weaknesses of human experience except for the weaknesses of sin. But did Jesus get weary after a long day of walking? You better believe he did. He wasn't Superman. Did Jesus get hot and needed a cool thing to drink? Yes, he did. Did he get thirsty? Did he get hungry? All of those things were true. He subjected himself to human limitations except the limitations that sin would put upon a person. So again, he's God, but he's not Superman, as it says there in verse 6, being wearied from his journey. Now verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Do you notice this? Apparently, Jesus is so weary that when he comes to this well, he sits down. And instead of going into the town to get food with his disciples, he says, guys, I'm just going to sit here. You guys go on and get what we need. And you bring a little back for me. So the disciples go off in a group on the road, and as they go, they pass by a woman. Now, I can envision this in my mind. I hope I'm not adding too much to the text, but I want you to just let the movie run in your mind, just as it happened. This was a real event. The disciples really went down the road to to the Samaritan city. The woman really came to the well. In my mind, they pass each other by. And as the disciples walked down in a group, I can almost guarantee you that the disciples did not yield the road to the woman at all. They did it for three reasons. They did it, first of all, because she was a woman. And look, you know, in that society, chivalry was dead. It had yet to be born. (laughs) Secondly, secondly, she was a Samaritan. And as John will explain to us shortly, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along so good. But thirdly, she would have been unusual because she came carrying something to contain water, but she came alone and at an unusual time of the day. So the disciples figure, this worthless woman, let her walk off the path. Let her take the long way. Let her walk through the weeds. We're going into town to get something for our master, Jesus. Well, what happens as the woman comes to the well? Look at verse 7 again. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. This woman, the Samaritan woman who comes to the well, she's fascinating. We we only know of her in this particular account, but if you put together the different aspects of the account, it's entirely, you learn something about this woman. You first of all learn that she is of a mature age. I mean, she's not 20 years old. In, In her 30s, maybe a little bit older. I mean, as we're going to find out, she has had five husbands. And it takes a while to work through five husbands. (laughs) So she's of mature age. But again, having five husbands, and I hope I'm not being weird. She had to be reasonably good looking. I mean, it's just, I mean, she she had had enough male attention in her life. Probably reasonably good looking. She, She had the unique gift. Well, really, it's a curse of picking the wrong men. Um, she, she had a troubled past that she would have preferred to keep as quiet as possible. I, I mean, I'm sure she didn't wear a t-shirt that said, been married five times. 
She'd like to keep it as quiet as possible. She, she was ready to talk. She was of a friendly personality. She didn't mind debating a little bit. She liked to ask questions and mix it up in a discussion. But we also see that she had a heart. She had a conscience that longed for something more. And by God's divine direction, she came to that well just as Jesus sat at that well. And then we read something shocking in verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Two things are shocking. First of all, that Jesus talked to her. Did you know that this was out of bounds in that culture? For a rabbi, a devout Jewish man, a rabbi, to speak to a Samaritan woman one-on-one, this broke all kinds of social and religious taboos. Now let me point out, it broke nothing scripturally commanded. Jesus didn't disobey God one bit here. But social taboos at the time? Friends, at that time, a devout Jewish man would not even speak to his wife or his daughter in public, much less a woman he had never met before. It just wasn't done. Matter of fact, you're aware of the Pharisees, sort of this elite religious group among the Jews of that time. They gave names or nicknames to all different kind of categories of Pharisees. And one of the nicknames they gave to one group of Pharisees, they called them the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. You go, bruised and bleeding Pharisees? Why would Pharisees be bruised and bleeding? They called these Pharisees bruised and bleeding Pharisees because whenever they were walking down the street and a woman appeared on the street, they would instantly close their eyes. And they would run into all kinds of stuff, walls and (laughs) trees and all that. And so they were bruised and bleeding. But that was, oh, how godly. A woman's out on the street. Of course he won't talk to her. That's a given. But he'll instantly close his eyes. He'll treat her as if she doesn't exist. And Jesus initiated a conversation with this woman, which, by the way, surprised her, which, by the way, surprised her disciple, his disciples. He initiated a conversation, and then he asked her for a drink of water. He, he in a sense, puts himself in debt to her. Would you mind doing me a favor? Would you mind helping me out? Now, she was startled by this. And in a way, we are. We see in this some of the marvelous paradoxes of who Jesus is. I mean, think about it just for a moment. Here, the one who gives us rest, Jesus, he's weary. Here, the the one who is Israel's Messiah, he's talking to a Samaritan. Here, the one who is righteousness and perfect obedience, he's breaking man's traditions and religious taboos. Here, the one who created all things, he's asking for help. Here, the one who is himself living water, he asks for a drink of water. Friends, don't you think that Jesus could have miraculously made that water come up? Of course he could have. But he says to this woman, please, ma'am, would you give me something to drink? Now, it's not written in the text, but to me it would seem very natural that between verse 8 and verse 9, she actually gave him some water to drink. So Jesus drinks the water, and then verse 9, maybe as soon as he's finished drinking or while he's drinking the water, the woman says this, verse 9, picture it in your mind. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's like the woman says, 
Sir, there's just one thing I want to know. You're obviously a Jew. I can tell by the way you dress. I can tell by the way you talk. I can tell by the direction that you're traveling. You're obviously traveling from Judea to Galilee. I get all that. What I don't get is why you are even talking to me. Please understand. The woman was impressed and maybe even confused by the friendliness of Jesus. He couldn't get anywhere talking to the woman about her soul until he communicated to you kindness, respect. He communicates this in the most beautiful way possible, even though, as it says in verse 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. By the way, in this whole big picture, I see something fascinating going on between John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. In John chapter 3... Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, a religious leader, just the kind of person who would despise this woman. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a religious leader. He might have been one of those bruised and bleeding Pharisees, for all I know. He spoke with Nicodemus, and Jesus said, Sir, you're a religious leader. You're a man respected by the religious establishment. You must be born again. But Jesus engaged with somebody from the religious establishment. Now, in John chapter 4, you see Jesus engage with somebody who is despised by the religious establishment. And I love it that Jesus is true on both parts. If you're part of the religious establishment, Jesus loves you, and he has something to say to you. If you're despised by the religious establishment, Jesus loves you and has something to say to you. So notice how Jesus continues on, starting now at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You see, Jesus just enjoyed the drink of refreshing water that the woman gave to him. But then he says, you know, I've got water to give to you. And the water that I have given to you, and obviously Jesus is using thirst and drinking as metaphorical pictures of spiritual realities. There is a physical reality that every one of us is aware of when we're thirsty, when we take a drink. This is common to all of us. There is a spiritual reality that is analogous to that. Just as much as you can have a thirsty body, you can have a thirsty soul. Just as much as you can drink water to refresh your thirsty body. So Jesus offers us living water to refresh our thirsty soul. These are the things Jesus is trying to communicate when he says to her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you some living water. Living water. Now, what's interesting about this is that when Jesus said to her living water, she thought one thing. And when Jesus intended it, he intended it in a metaphorical way, obviously. What did she think when, he heard the, when she heard the words living water? Living water was what they called back then water that flowed up from a spring, water that flowed in a stream. Living water was water in motion. And living water was much better than water in a pool, in a cistern. Which would you rather drink? Water that's been sitting out in a backyard pool for six months? Or water that bubbles up from an artesian spring? You know which one is better. Which would you rather drink? Water that's down at the bottom of a well that's been sitting there for a long time or water that bubbles up? You know, the water that bubbles up comes to you. It's easy to get. 
So when she heard living water, she's thinking a spring, a stream bubbling up like a fountain from below. That's great. But Jesus is going to take this figure that she is accustomed with and connect it with the spiritual reality. Living water that he has to offer. So notice, he says, continuing on in verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. He means the water from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Notice this. Jesus says, you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again. Ma'am, you come to this well every day. Isn't it interesting that you come here alone? Isn't it interesting that you come here in the heat of the day? Why don't you come in the company of other women? Why do you come at an unusual time instead of when everybody else comes? Why do you come alone to the well? Now, she's thinking about this and that, well, you drink of this water, thirst again. I'll have to come back to this well again and again. But Jesus says, look at the phrase in verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. What Jesus said was an amazing offer. Jesus says this to the woman and to anybody who will hear. He says it to you if you'll listen to him today. That I have something to give to you that will give you lasting satisfaction. And the key to it is to drink the water that he gives. Now, obviously, the woman took it simply in a materialistic, literal way. Notice her response right there in verse 15. She says, sir, give me this water. I would love to no longer have to come to this well every day, especially because I have to come alone. I would love to no longer have to do the work of drawing up the water from the well. I'd love that. Never thirst again. Always have living water. That's great. She's missing the point, but she's not far from it. Because the water that Jesus is speaking about is speaking about in spiritual terms of a thirst that needs to be satisfied in the inner man, in the inner woman. Friends, it's very common for people in the world today to try to satisfy this God-created inner thirst. And they try to satisfy it through many things. They try to satisfy it through anything except for what Jesus gives them. But it just points out to the fact that people are thirsty. They're thirsty. They, they, They want, they long, they search, they reach. But only what Jesus gives them satisfies the soul of the inner man or the inner woman. Don't you notice this all around you? Don't you notice it? Just this last uh, Friday night was October 31st. It's not just a night, but a whole weekend, a big partying out at the UCSB campus at Isla Vista. It's a big, big thing. And there they are. The big thing that was disrupted this year no doubt an answer to prayer, by some cold weather and some rain showers that literally put a damper on it. But if you think about it when it's going in full steam, when there's thousands of young people roaming the streets, and what are they really looking for? You know, they're looking for um, something to drink. They're looking for some intoxicating substance. They're they're looking for a, a romance, a hookup, a little bit of excitement. 
You know, but beyond everything that they're looking for is something deep and empty on the inside. Something deep and empty that Jesus Christ can fill in their life. You know, it's easy for us to kind of despise people who are in that search. I don't think Jesus despises them. I think Jesus, with a heavy heart, says, you, you're like somebody who's dying of thirst, and you take a swig of salt water. And for a moment, it feels good. But then almost immediately, you're thirstier than you ever were before. And isn't that exactly the description of everybody that's trying to satisfy that inner ache in some other way? It might satisfy just for a bare moment, but almost immediately you feel emptier than ever before. And Jesus says, come to me and have your thirst really satisfied. I have the living water. Matter of fact, you just won't receive living water. You'll become a spring of water. Look at what he says in verse 14. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Friends, the figures of this is that Jesus wants to fill our life and we receive it just like you drink out of a water bottle. And you fill it in yourself. Now, I know some people who say, listen, you know, I I did that Jesus thing. I, I drank of what Jesus offered. And I feel empty. I feel thirsty again. You know what the key to that is? Um, Keep drinking. What would you say of somebody in the morning, they drink, you know, a water bottle. They drink it down and that, and they go, and then by late afternoon, they go, that water didn't work at all. I'm thirsty again. They say, well, why don't you drink some more? The good news in Jesus Christ is that there's a continual supply in Jesus. It never runs dry. We just have to keep accessing life in Jesus and his living water again and again and again. Well, in this particular woman's life, there was something blocking her from drinking. There was something blocking her from receiving. And now starting at verse 16, Jesus is going to deal with that which blocked. Notice here, verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. This wasn't an unusual request. I mean, by the social norms of that day, the conversation had gone a little bit too long. Would have been entirely perfect. Well, you know what? Look, I don't want to talk to an unchaperoned woman for so long. Why don't you go get your husband, bring him here. We'll continue on the discussion. I don't want to stop the discussion. Go get your husband, come. We'll continue on this discussion. Of course, Jesus wasn't so concerned about the outward propriety of it. He's trying to get at something at the woman's life. And instantly he touches upon it because she responds in verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Oh, go, go get your husband. Well, I have no husband. And then look at what Jesus responds next. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. (laughs) Well, indeed. Why did Jesus bring up the whole business with a husband? Because he's trying to get at something in her life that prevents her from receiving what Jesus has to give to her. Jesus wasn't doing it just to make her feel awkward or embarrassed or to put her on the spot. Jesus is doing this for good reason. She said, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst. And he says, listen, if I'm going to reach you, woman, I got to reach you through the door of your conscience. And your stained conscience over your past life hinders you from receiving what I have to give to you. 
Friends, there's many different ways that Jesus Christ can come and reach somebody. I, I read something from the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon this week. I think he hit it right on the head. He said this, quote, Christ has different doors for entering different people's souls. Into some he enters by understanding. Into many by the affections. To some he comes by the way of fear. To another by that of hope. And to this woman he came by the way of conscience. Weighing heavily on her conscience was the fact That in some way or another she had lived, let's just say it as charitably as we can, a complicated romantic life. Five husbands and the one that she lived with right now was not her husband. Jesus said, let's get this cleared out of the way. Let's deal with this head on. Friends, how do you feel when Jesus calls you on a particular sin? Do you realize that he does it so that he can get it out of the way so that you can have more of him and more of life than ever before? If he's confronting you about sin in your life, it's not because he's angry with you. It's because he loves you. It's because he wants to deal with this in your life. That's what he's doing with the life of this particular woman. And then he says to her very straightforwardly, he says, the one whom you have now is not your husband. Jesus brought this up because her sinful life on this particular point needed to be confronted. The woman had to make a decision. What do you love more? This relationship that's out of God's will or the Messiah? Which do you love more? Now, by the way, and I just need to add this. When Jesus said that the man that she lived with was not her husband, Jesus showed us that living together and marriage are not the same thing. Let me just point that out because sometimes it goes overlooked in our society. And I know that the general trend in our society is that people get married less and less often and they just simply live together more and more often. Listen, if that's you, because, you know, we really don't do like a, make you prove your address or check your driver's license when you come into the door here. I understand that maybe some of you right now, you're living together and you're not married. I don't say a word to condemn you. I just say, Jesus wants to address this in your life. And he wants you either to separate with that person and live a God-honoring life or get it settled through marriage. This is what God wants you to do. But, But this is what I want you to understand. Jesus makes it pretty plain here that living together is not the same as marriage. The other thing that he makes clear by implication is that just because someone calls a relationship marriage, it doesn't mean that God considers it a marriage. Now, going on here, the woman responded, verse 19, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, yeah, indeed, Jesus is a prophet. He just nailed you on a particular thing in your life. But look at what she does next in verse 20. It's priceless. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you Jews say in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Instantly, she brings up a theological controversy. You know, Jesus, may I deflect you from you paying attention to my life? And and may I get you interested in this interesting theological discussion? Is it Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? Is it predestination or free will? Is it a young earth or is it an old earth? Anything to deflect attention from my life. Is this how it works sometimes? Isn't it true that sometimes we we gain a sudden interest in theological controversy as soon as the preacher starts getting too close to you where you actually live? 
And the woman does this. It's second nature. Notice what Jesus said. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. And ma'am, when the Messiah comes and institutes his new order, people aren't going to have debates about worshiping Jerusalem or worshiping Gerizim because it no longer is of any interest. We realize that where we worship God is in spirit and in truth. And this, this is the great message that should guide our worship when Jesus so powerfully said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is the basis for true worship. It's not found in places. It's not found in trappings. It's found in spirit and in truth. You see, to be worshiping God in spirit means that you're concerned with spiritual realities, not so much with places and structures and cleansings and trappings and ceremonies, but you're instant with connecting with God on a spiritual level. To worship him in truth means that, first of all, you do it according to biblical truth, that you don't do anything in your worship that violates a command of God. But secondly, to worship God in truth also means that you bring your true self before him. Not the phony you. Not the church you. The real you. I've said it before, and I don't tire of saying it. When you bring the true you who you really are, to the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, life transformation happens. Bring the true you to the true Jesus, and again, it'll change your life and fill your thirsty soul. Here's the problem. A lot of people bring a fake self, you know, the churchy self, not the real you. They bring a fake self to a twisted Jesus, not the Jesus that's really described for us in the Bible, and then they wonder, well, gee, that didn't really work. Friends, you bring the true you to the true Jesus, that's where life transformation happens. That's why Jesus said that the Father's looking for those to worship him in spirit and in truth. And he closed his words to the woman at the well by saying, I who speak to you am he. Or let me restate that. He didn't close his words. We're going to pick this up next week and continue on this conversation. But this particular section, he closes it by saying, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. I'm the one who can satisfy your thirsty soul. I'm the one who has living water and an endless supply of it for you. Friends, I'm going to pray and conclude in just a moment. But then after I pray, we're going to prepare our hearts to receive something from the Lord's table. What a perfect moment this is. Because you know what we invite you to do if you come and participate at the Lord's table with us and receive the cup and the bread? We invite you to drink. Now look, it's not much. Just barely bigger than a thimble full. 
But what is represented by that bread and that cup, the work of Jesus as a demonstration of love and power to you, you receive that by faith, it will satisfy any thirsty soul. That's what Jesus has for you this morning. So let's come before the Lord together in prayer and prepare our hearts to come to his table. Father in heaven, I hear you. Give out the call. You ask if anyone is thirsty. Come, let him drink freely of the waters of life. Jesus, I pray that you would give your grace and your power and your presence to thirsty souls. And Lord, those of us who know what it is to drink at your well, at your fountain, Lord, I pray that you'd Help us to drink at it again and again and satisfy the thirst of our soul. Do it in our midst, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name.